verses of uh, Titus 1. Let me ask if you would, if you're able to stand as we read God's Word together. Paul, a servant of God and and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work even now. Use these words uh, to do the very things that Paul actually envisions them doing, even in this passage itself, uh, reaching the lost and equipping the saints. We pray all of this for the honor and glory of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last um, over the last couple of years, we've kind of sprinkled in a sermon series here and there um, that are particular to us as a church plant uh, that have to do with things like working towards our own elders that have to do with working towards our own structure, our own independence, our own government. And this letter to Titus from the Apostle Paul, Titus, the pastor of, I don't know, Crete Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church of Crete, an entire island, maybe there were towns there, whatever the case, he's the pastor of First prayers in Crete. That's how it'll come out of my mouth. That's how we'll say it. And it, um, the book will give us uh, yet another opportunity to see how uh, ministry at Grace Covenant in a, in a church plant sort of context, working towards our own elders, our own leaders, um, how that all uh, plays out. These four verses kind of lay the groundwork. They sort of set the stage for the rest of the letter. Notice the first thing you see uh, in these verses. uh, We see a servant on a mission. Uh, Paul is the author of this letter to Titus, uh, and we could spend an entire sermon just on that alone. We could spend easily uh, an entire sermon examining uh, Paul's background. Paul was uh, a Roman citizen and and a Greek and Greek speaker. Therefore, he had complete freedom in the Roman world. He could go wherever he wanted to go. He spoke the language. He was of their culture um, and, uh, and uh, had the, the honor of the privilege of as a Roman citizen. Uh, but he was also Jewish, uh, which meant that he really, in, in many ways, kind of had the best of both of those worlds, if you can say it that way. Um, you can read in Acts 22 in, in Philippians and in Galatians and then several places in, in Acts as well as he recounts his story of where he's been, where he comes from. Born in uh, Tarsus of Cilicia, but raised in Jerusalem at the feet of, for lack of a better comparison, the Harvard Law School of Judaism in his day. At the feet of Gamaliel, uh, the leading teacher of Judaism. That would be you know, the equivalent, our equivalent, I guess, of, of Harvard Law. Um, a strict follower of the law, 
uh, devoutly zealous for God. He describes himself using all these kinds of language. In fact, he was so devout that he was persecuting Christians. Um, In Acts 7, when Stephen is stoned for preaching Christ as the Messiah, the guy in charge of the coat room, the guy who's sort of, you know, checking people's coats and hanging them up in that in the coat closet, you know, because you 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 can't throw stones very well when you've got coats on, right? So they would take their coats off so they could stone Stephen for preaching the gospel. He was the coat check closet guy. Uh, and we're told he fully approved of Stephen's stoning. In fact, he so approved that at the beginning of the very next chapter, he actually has letters from Jewish leaders granting him the right to find seek out to find to grab to arrest and persecute Christians now not just in Jerusalem but everywhere that's where he was going when he was converted in Acts chapter 9 he was on his way to Damascus for the purpose of finding followers of the way finding finding professing believers arresting them and uh, bringing them to be persecuted for their faith. That, that's your author. Um, that's the background. That's the history of the guy who's writing this letter to Titus. Here, here's why that matters. Well, here's one of the, reason, uh, one of the reasons that matters. Uh, the first is, notice how he introduces himself. Typically, usually in his letters, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. Here, he uses servant first. The only time he uses servant alone that I think I think this is right. The only time he uses servant alone is in Philippians. Here, he takes servant and apostle and puts them together. The Greek word for servant, doulos. It's servant, it's slave. And, and we're in Alabama, you know what slaves are. Okay, Athens doesn't exactly have the history that Selma and Montgomery have, Birmingham. But we're in Alabama. We understand when we say the word slave, we immediately cringe. We, we immediately kind of recoil against that idea because of the, the deep negative historical con, con, uh, meaning it has in our context. A servant, a slave, is someone who does what his master says. It's the, the, the person, um, a human, a person, but who is, has no freedom, has no will of their own, has no rights of their own, and does whatever their master tells them to do. Paul, having, having been a Hebrew of Hebrews, with all the background and honor and prestige that he has as a as a, a Roman citizen, a Greek, and as a Jew, and the training he has, he's not at all bothered by claiming the title of servant of God. He's not at all ashamed to claim, I'm God's servant. But he's also an apostle. He's The word literally means one who is sent out. He's been called by Christ himself in Acts chapter 9. You can go back and read that this afternoon. Read of his conversion. And there, not only does Christ call him to himself in saving faith, but he also then gives him a mission to go to the Gentiles. So he's been, been called by Christ and sent out 
by Christ on his, uh, his mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's a slave whose will and, and freedom are bound to Christ. But then he's also sent out by his master to, uh, to reach the Gentiles. And having been sent by Christ as a servant, he can't do anything other than what his master tells him to do. That's the author. That's the one who says, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed at all to claim I'm, I'm bound to Christ both for my salvation and for my mission. I'm bound to Christ and therefore am sent out by Him to do whatever He tells me to do. Paul's a, a servant on a mission as he writes this letter to Titus. But what's the mission? He tells us uh, what the mission is in the rest of verse 1. He's sent out, <clears throat> and it has two parts. For the sake of the faith of God's elect... Paul's a, a servant sent out by Christ to take the gospel to those to the elect, to those whom God will draw to himself when the time comes. It's you and I would say it's evangelism. It's missions. Uh, he's been been a servant and an apostle sent for the whole purpose of uh, gathering those who would trust in Christ, uh, bringing them through the preaching of the Word to saving faith in Christ. For the sake of the faith, uh, unto their faith, them coming to faith. That's the phrase, the aim of that phrase there. Now you and I have at least one problem with what Paul's said so far. Did you notice? He hadn't even finished the first sentence. And this one's not as long as some of his others. He hasn't even finished the first sentence and he's already being divisive. Did you notice that? He uses a word that in our world is an inherently divisive term. He uses the word elect. Would God really actually determine to bring some to saving faith in Christ and not others? Is that really how God operates? Paul uses the term elect right here in this verse, recognizing that, that some have been, by God's grace and by His sovereign will, appointed to everlasting life and some have not. He certainly, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes this letter, he certainly believes that there is a group of people called God's elect. Those whom God has set His affections on from before the foundation of the world and who will bring them to saving faith in time and in space when He so determines. For us, it's a divisive word. In our world, it's a, that's a troubling word. Because it, quite honestly, we part of us recoils at the thought, would a loving God actually do that? You know, one of the accusations against people like us, our denomination, that believes in election is those people don't evangelize. Well, right here in this verse, Paul's going, I firmly believe in election and my mission 
is evangelism. I mean, how are those people going to come to saving faith in Christ if someone doesn't proclaim the gospel to them? That's the whole point of Romans 10. No one's going to come to saving faith in Christ if the gospel isn't preached. And so Paul says, part of my mission is to take the gospel to the elect. Now, does Paul know who the elect are? Does he know who those people are? Like, can you walk through town and go, there's the crooked right eyebrow of all the elect? You can recognize the elect because their, their right eyebrow has this, a weird bend in it. They have this, this weird mark on their left cheek. And if you just pay attention, you'll see that they don't bear that mark. And so Paul goes out to preach the gospel. He has no idea who the elect are. He doesn't know who those people are. But it doesn't slow him down. And it doesn't stop him from proclaiming the gospel to everyone. Read the book of Acts and count the number of people who, in response to his preaching, want to kill him rather than want to trust in Christ. He has no idea who the elect are, and yet his mission is to see them come to saving faith in Christ. His his part of his mission is evangelism. By the way, this is why we did the art of neighboring this summer. This is the whole purpose right here. Because part of our mission is to reach the lost for Christ. And we want to love our neighbors and know our neighbors well enough to know, are these people believers or not? And with, with an ultimate goal and aim towards seeing them come to saving faith in Christ. But there's a second part of his mission at the end of verse 1. Not only is he sent out for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but he's also sent out... Uh, for their, their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. He's a, a servant and an apostle, not just for evangelism, but for what you and I would call discipleship. Uh, teaching them the truth of God's Word to see them grow in godliness. You're, he's, he's teaching and training the truth of God's revealed will so that those who do come to faith in Christ grow up and mature as believers. You know, there's some folks in our world, in our circles, they don't like to talk about uh, godly living because they're afraid of being called a legalist. Uh, And yet, uh, Paul says here and in other places, and certainly the rest of Scripture says, uh, that it's all the gospel has always been about more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It doesn't just grant you freedom from punishment for sin. It also changes the way your marriage, your work, your parenting, your neighboring, your whatever. It's supposed to affect every part of who we are. So we should grow in the knowledge of truth uh, which accords with godliness which aims towards godliness. Let me show you this. If you want to turn back to Romans 20, I mean to Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29, you can. Uh, this is a verse most of us know half of. Most of us are familiar enough with the first half of the verse. Oh, that's right. That's that verse. I'm pretty sure that's that verse that absolves me of the responsibility of knowing things I can't know. The secret things belong to the Lord. That's the first part of Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
Oh, sweet. That means there's some secret things that he knows that I don't know, that I don't have to know. I can hide behind that and I don't have to worry about it. How many of us, though, know the rest of the verse? Because notice how it finished. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Even the very verse that we run to to say, well, see, I can't know everything turns around and tells us, yeah, but what you do know should matter. It should actually impact your life. The goal should be not just believe in Jesus. I don't have to go to hell when I die, but believe in Jesus and grow up in godliness. It should affect our godly living. Paul is on a mission and that mission is saving the lost and growing their understanding, which would lead to godly Living. Did you notice? You you probably didn't because I didn't I didn't I didn't warn anybody to pay attention to this on the front end. But you can you can do it. You in your our confession of faith a few minutes ago we t- chose two sections of chapter twenty five of um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Thank you, Ko, for the way you introduced that. Even gave us the title of the chapter. Um, did you notice the purpose of the church in section three for the gathering? And perfecting of the saints. You want to say evangelism and discipleship instead? That's fine. If you want to take RUF's uh, motto, reaching students for Christ, equipping them to serve, hey, look, that's the same thing. Uh, Teaching and training, you know, gathering, reaching the lost, evangelism, and then also equipping them for service in the kingdom. You could use justification and sanctification if you wanted to. They all basically mean the same thing. The lost coming to faith in Christ, unbelievers coming to saving faith in Christ, and then growing up in holiness. We see Paul's a servant on a mission. We see his two-part mission, evangelism and discipleship, reaching the lost and equipping them to serve. Notice uh, the third thing we see is Paul's motivation. Uh, You know, one of my... um, This is a... the, The places I've lived have not really done much um, to, to, to help me with this. One of my favorite places to be in all the world, no, it's not Clemson. I mean, it's up there. Clemson's up there. Don't get me wrong. But honestly, one of my favorite places to be in all the world is out on a boat in the ocean. And if you can see land, you're not far enough. You want to be able to stand there on that boat and spin around 360 degrees and all you can see as far as you can see is water meeting sky. And there's nothing to interrupt that that view at all. Paul in verse 2 sort of stands on the deck of a boat. And he looks one direction as far as he possibly can. And notice what he sees in verse 2. It accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Paul looks forward as far as he can, standing on the deck of that boat. And instead of seeing horizon, instead of seeing sky meet ocean, 
He sees eternity. He sees eternal life. The reason He's motivated to gather and perfect the saints, the reason He's motivated to reach the lost and equip them to serve is because there is this thing out there promised to us that is eternal life. Why bother gathering and perfecting the saints? Why bother to use the language of grace covenant? Why bother with the whole gospel for the whole person? Because we're all headed somewhere. And that somewhere is eternal life with Christ. We're all headed to hope of eternal life. You and I don't use that word the right way. When you and I say hope, we really mean more like wish or I would really like for. You know, I hope we have steak for lunch today. I hope my team wins. I hope I make an A on this test. I hope my kids do better in school. I hope, and you, right? I and mean, what we really mean is, I'd really like for blank to be true. Maybe it will be. Maybe it won't be. You know, some of those things I can control. I could cook steak, I suppose. I could study for the test and actually do well on it, I suppose. But, but we use the word hope to mean like wish or it sure would be nice if. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. When you read hope in the Bible, it's more like I can't wait for, longing for, certainty of anticipation for. Paul preaches the gospel. He reaches the lost and equips them to serve. Why? For the certainty, the longing for eternal life. Paul looks as far as he can forward. And he sees the hope of eternal life. The sure and certain reality of eternity with Christ. And that drives him to reach the lost and equip them to serve. And then Paul on the deck of that boat turns around and looks the other way. And he looks backwards. He looks behind him. And it, it's really kind of fun. I was usually driving, so I didn't do this tons. But when you're on the ocean, there's not a lot to run into. You're taking the boat out. And I can just imagine leaving uh, the mouth of the South Edisto River and heading out into the ocean, passing by the markers, the buoys along the way. And you kind of have a general sense of now's about the time the land should be disappearing. And you just kind of turn around and look and watch it go. Paul turns around and, and looks back. And off in his distance behind him is eternity past. Because notice what he says at the end of at verse 2. This hope of eternal life, which is still in eternity future, God promised in eternity past, before the ages began. Salvation isn't God's way of going, uh-oh, um, Adam and Eve messed up. Now there's this thing called sin. There's this mess. i got to clean up this mess. Uh, that's what you do, right? I mean, like, I drop a glass of milk and the glass shatters and there's milk everywhere. And it takes me a minute to kind of go, 
right, wait, wait, wait. What's the tool I need first for cleaning up this mess? Is it something to get the glass? Or is it something to get the milk? If I get the milk, am I going to get the glass? Am I going to cut myself? I can't get a vacuum yet because there's milk. That's not good. I got to get... Right? That, that's what we do. How often do you imagine God going, Oh no. Adam and Eve messed up. They're sinning the... Now what? Uh, wait, vacuum? No. A brute? No, I got to get a paper towel first. Maybe I need to... Salvation in Christ isn't plan B. It was promised by God in eternity past. This has been the plan all along. God didn't freak out and go, quick, I need something to clean up because I didn't see this coming. He says instead, this is the promise that God made even before the ages began. It was promised way back then. At that point, I had Eric Clapton playing in my head. How do we know? How did we? How could we know that promises end? The the this this relationship we we knew we were going to love each other. We knew we'd always be friends. How could we know that promises end? I didn't know that that promise made way back when would come to end. See, that's what happens when you and I make promises. Here are all the things that could go wrong. You could be lying. You could be young enough that you've got your fingers crossed behind your back. Or if you've done that a few too many times, you then say, well, but my hair is crossed. Right? We try everything. Well, I promise I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. You know. Um, or, or if it takes long enough to happen, we forget that we made the promise. I, I forgot that promises end. How, did I, how could I know that promises end? Promises, there's a statute of limitations on promises, Eric Clapton sings. But did you see how Paul described God? I think it's a little odd, to be honest with you. Like, there's a part of me that wants to go, why bother mentioning that God can't lie? That sort of seems like a given to me. Like, if it's that obvious, why even bring it up? I mean, if it's that sort of automatic, why even bring it up? Well, because of verse 12. Look down at verse 12 of Titus 1. Paul's writing to Titus, pastor of First Pres in Crete. Oh, and by the way, Cretans, according to their own poets, they're always liars. They're, they lie. And so Paul goes, oh, by the way, Titus, your culture, your context, your ministry setting, those people... According to their own poet, they're liars. But don't let them go, oh, well, if God made a promise, He lied too because we lie because God can't lie. You know, you say, you teach your kids that God can do everything. There's nothing God can't do. You know, that's not true. He can't lie. He actually can't lie. It would be a violation of His character to lie. Paul says, God who never lies made this promise. Before the foundation of the world. A truth-telling God has promised eternal life. Nothing can change that. Nothing can erase that. Nothing can undo that. It's guaranteed. And that promise grounded in eternity past, looking to eternity future, is Paul's motivation for ministry. Paul's a servant on a mission. We see his mission. We see his motivation. Notice his method, verse 3. Um, 
And he kind of has a double meaning here. He looks back to his own conversion. How was Paul brought to saving faith in Christ? Well, through the proclamation of his word. Yes, he had a vision of Christ. And Christ, by his word, by his uh, message, brought Paul to saving faith in Christ. And then gave him the mission of being a preacher, a proclaimer of the good news of Christ. Paul says, it's my mission, it's my method for accomplishing this mission is through the preaching of God's Word, verse 3. You know, there's a very real sense in which in the preaching of God's Word, eternity past and eternity future meet. We proclaim that which has always been Two people so that we might trust for what will always be. There's a very real sense, Paul says, in which when the Word uh, manifested in His Word through the preaching, in that moment, eternity past and eternity future meet. He's been entrusted with the function, the responsibility of proclaiming God's Word. Preaching is the primary means by which Paul teaches and Uh, reaches the lost and equips uh, those who have been saved by grace. Maybe you've heard that quote that's frequently attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's probably not. There's not much evidence of it. But we typically say it was St. Francis that said it. Preach the gospel every day. If necessary, use words. I would say, Scripture says, if you're not using words, you're not preaching the Gospel. That's exactly the point of Romans 10, right? How can people come to saving faith in Christ unless someone preached to them? And how can someone preach to them unless a preacher is sent to them? If you're not actually using words, you're not preaching the Gospel. So St. Francis' quote is, is really not true at all. The gospel is a message that needs to be proclaimed. Now, that doesn't mean it has to happen in this formal setting every, you know, only on this Sunday morning. Like you can't do that in your homes with your neighbors. Like we can't do that with the people we come into contact with day in and day out, proclaiming the truth of God's word in the formal official sense. This is it, but it happens in smaller, sort of lesser uh, ways throughout our week. Paul's method is primarily through preaching. And then finally, I put in your handout, in your, in your notes, in your outline, the mission field, which only to keep the mission thing flowing, but it's really kind of a stupid outline because Titus is really the audience. Titus, the, uh, it's not a mission field in the way you and I think of it. Titus has uh, been set up by Paul as, um, and, and sent back to Crete to be this uh, pastor of this church. But Paul and Titus, they have two things in common. One is that they're both Greek. That their background, they're both, by birth, they're both Greek. They have that in common. After that, it really starts to kind of dwindle. Titus is a a Greek believer, a Greek Christian, who was converted apparently through 
uh, Paul's ministry, Paul's preaching. But having been raised as a Greek, he's never been circumcised. In fact, Paul specifically told him when he was converted, no, we're not going to circumcise you to make an example of Titus uh, to the Jewish world around them. He wasn't Jewish. Uh, he had never received the covenant sign of circumcision. He didn't have the, the benefits of uh, having been raised in a, a Hebrew uh, household. And yet, once he's converted, you can see in Galatians 2, Paul did not have him circumcised. He's sort of set up as these legalistic Judaizers were complaining about people like Titus. Their argument was basically this. If you're Greek, in order to come to Christ, you have to pass through Judaism to get there. You can't go from Greek to Christian without going from Greek to Jewish to Christian. You've got to pass through and then keep the food laws, the dietary laws, and be circumcised. All those things like we are. And Paul says, no, you're completely missing the point. His hope, his confidence is not in his works. It's not in the deeds of the flesh. It's not in uh, circumcision or keeping these dietary uh, food laws. Paul said, no, Titus, you will not be circumcised in order to make the point that salvation is all of grace. That there's nothing about our salvation that says, well, I was good enough. Because if you want that, Paul's testimony is the one you want. A Hebrew of Hebrews doing everything right. And he counts that as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Titus was... Uh, involved. If you read through 2 Corinthians, Titus's name comes up over and over again, apparently carrying letters uh, back and forth from Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul was had a Jewish heritage, the best Jewish teaching. Titus did not. Paul was circumcised. Titus was not. Paul was an apostle called by Christ. Titus was not. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, Titus was an uncircumcised Greek, an uncircumcised Gentile. And yet notice what Paul calls him in verse 4. A true child in a common faith. Humanly speaking, Paul had every reason to look down on Titus as a second class Christian. I mean... Circumcised on the eighth day. Tribe of Benjamin. That's the best tribe. You know, that's the one you want. My teacher, Gamaliel, the best. What do you have, Titus? Mm, not so much, huh? I mean, it would be tempting to look down. And Paul says, Paul. Paul. Author of the majority of the New Testament. Can look at Titus, a convert, Gentile. And say, this is my true son. Converted under my ministry. And we share a common faith. We are no different. We're exactly alike in the church. We're exactly alike in relation to Christ. Paul doesn't look down on Titus. And in essence, he says there's no such thing as a second class citizen in the church of Christ. Christians are brothers and sisters by grace 
not through our own works, not through our own merit. And so Paul can say to Titus, this is my true child in a common faith. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, um, you need to know that Paul and Titus both stand up before us and say, salvation is all of grace. Paul can look at his testimony and go, look at all the great things I did according to the law, meaningless. Titus can go, I didn't do any of those things. Also meaningless in Christ. Salvation is all of grace. Are you tempted to think to yourself, boy, Jesus sure is glad to have me on his team. Boy, I sure am glad I was smart enough to come to faith. And boy, I sure am glad I wasn't as bad as the people down the other end of this room. Or on the other side of the room. Or are you thinking to yourself, I mean, I, you don't know how bad I am. I mean, I, I've got to get some things cleaned up. I mean, I, I really think I might believe the gospel, but if you'll hold on and give me a minute, let me get some things straight, then I'll turn in faith to Christ. Paul and Titus are going, you can't do that. You can't clean yourself up. You go to Christ because salvation is all of grace. You don't deserve it. That's exactly right. There's nothing you've done to merit His favor. There's nothing you've done to, to make it so that He can't possibly... There's nothing that's so bad that He can't bring you to saving faith. Paul and Titus represent both of those to us. Salvation is all of grace. Second, they also represent for us... Salvation is all of Christ. It's not you. It's not your goodness. It's not your obedience. It's not the works of your hands. It's not the deeds of your flesh. It's all that Christ has done for you. It's His sinless life in place of your sinful one. It's His atoning death in place of your freedom. It's His resurrection and defeating death so that you might have hope of eternal life. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of Christ. Third, uh, the church is here. The church is on the earth to reach the lost and to train and equip the saints. Can you merit your salvation by being good enough? By being godly enough? No. Does your salvation lead to godliness? It should. That's the point of the passage. This is why our mission at Grace Covenant is the whole gospel for the whole person. It's, it's, we want the whole gospel so that people are trusting in Christ and Him alone for their salvation and not in their own works. But it's also for the whole person, meaning it should change us. It should change everything about us. That's the aim of Grace Covenant Church. And finally, the primary means of reaching the lost and equipping the saints is the Word of God. Ministry at Grace Covenant will be word-based because it's His Word that God uses to gather and perfect the saints, to reach unbelievers and to grow them and equip them, uh, to teach them the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us, shown to us in Christ, revealed to us in time and space through your word, having heard of our sin and need for a Savior, and then heard that that Savior proclaimed to our hearing, you unstopped our ears so that we might hear and believe and trust. Father, we pray that you would use us to gather and perfect the saints in Athens and in Alabama and around the world, that you would use us to reach the lost with the gospel of Christ and then grow them in their knowledge of the truth, which is unto godliness. And would you also grow in us deeper gratitude for salvation that is all of grace and all of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.